Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. John the Baptist prepares the way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river, Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. If you ever miss a Sunday, I don't, in, I don't encourage you to do that. Never miss church, you know, unless major surgery or something like that, or big, you went on a cruise or something. But um, uh, the, uh, um, I podca- we podcast this sermon, you know, we put the sermon out there so people can listen to it if they miss church. And it's always a choice which, serve, you know, which, which one did you deliver the sermon better at, and then you're going to put that on the website. And it's definitely going to be the 1030 service today. Uh, the end of my sermon was a little clip this morning. I, got a, I felt my phone ringing, which I know it's only going to be like something really bad happening if I get called during church because I know I'm at work. And so I started panicking at the end of my sermon. So I gave sort of like a deer in headlights delivery of the last about three minutes of my sermon. So you people are getting like the best last three minutes of the sermon today. Everything was okay. Amy had just, I took the van and the keys were in the van. And so Amy had no way to get to church. But thank you, mom, for picking her up. I really appreciate that. So just that by, I just want you all to know you're getting the absolute best a, a, a delivery of the material today. 
Um, but so we're, we, we've started this sermon series, and we, we, we transitioned. We were doing the narrative lecture, and we're continuing to do that. But the, this, this story of the Old Testament, um, and, 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 and looking at this grand overarching story of how God works with his people in the Old Testament. And then we transitioned at the end of Advent into the Gospel of Matthew that we're going to be going through uh, just past Easter this year. And so already we've gotten some of the best stories from the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. We, we got the story of Joseph and of Mary, and, and when we got Jesus's genealogy, and then last week um, we had the visit of the three wise men, and contrary to what Matt Anderson said last week, oh, we don't know how many wise men came. It's definitely three, 100%. Uh, have you seen your nativity set? Have you ever seen more than three wise men? Ipso facto, ergo, counselor Nate, lawyer Nate says I am on firm legal ground <laughs> in saying there's only three wise men. <laughs> and so... And Matt said, he, he, he talked about last week how, you know, Herod finds out this news, and so he issues this just horrible decree to kill all of uh, the, the, the young uh, baby boys who were born because um, the birth of this Messiah, you know, this shows that it's more than just, you know, what we would think of as a religious or spiritual event, but it has profound political implica- Im- implications, the birth of this baby. And so Joseph and Mary and the baby, they flee to Egypt. And then when they get word that the coast is clear, they come back to Roman Palestine and settle in this little hamlet called Nazareth. And then in Matthew's gospel, nothing happens for the next almost 30 years in Jesus' life. Nothing happens until John the Baptist bursts on the scene. And all four of the Gospels connect the beginning of Jesus' public ministry to John the Baptist, and more specifically, to, to John's baptism of Jesus. And so for us, in order to understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, we've got to understand John, what John was doing, who he was, and, and, and what his message was, and, and what he did. And, and throughout this, and as we go through Matthew, I, I just want us to be, pay attention, have our antenna up for something. And that something is that as Matthew tells Jesus' story, one of his major concerns is to connect this with what came before. And so Matthew is always looking back to the Old Testament, how Jesus is the one who fulfilled what the Old Testament was pointing to. And so we, we're going to see this theme recur again and again and again. So first, that question, who was John the Baptist? And to put it in its most succinct form, as Matthew presents John, John is really, he's an embodiment of the Old Testament. He's like the Old Testament incarnate. He is the law in person that prepares the way for the coming of the gospel. He's the forerunner. He's the opening act. He's the hype man for Jesus, getting the crowd ready. And John, he looked looked and he lived and, and he acted and spoke like a prophet. He just looked like a prophet. He had this garment made out of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And, and with someone who was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, they would think immediately of the prophet Elijah, who dressed in almost exactly the same way, the same Elijah who, by the way, if you were to open your Bible, turn to the Old Testament, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, turn to the last page, chapter 4 of Malachi. Who appears on the scene? Elijah. Here's how Eugene Peterson translates those last words of Malachi. See if maybe it rings any bells. So here's what he says. Count on it. The day is coming raging like a forest fire. All the arrogant people who do evil things will be burned up like stove wood, burned to a crisp, nothing left but scorched earth and ash. A black day. But also look ahead. I'm sending Elijah the prophet to clear the way for the big day of God 
the decisive judgment day. Does that sound like anyone? John the Baptist, right there. John is this Elijah figure preparing the way, and I love the way Peterson phrases this, the big day of God. This was the day that God's people were looking forward to when God was going to set the world right, and it was going to be great news for God's people. Oh, man, this glorious day where for the people who were the wicked and on the wrong side, it was going to be a really, really, really bad day. And so after Malachi recorded those words, the prophets had been silent for 400 years, the exact same number of years, coincidentally, that God's people had spent in slavery in Egypt. And so at this point in time, God's people are waiting, they're watching, they're hoping, they're listening for a voice from God. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness, and he's dressed like Elijah, and he's preaching a message that sounds like Malachi. And they thought, okay, this big day of God, this day of the Lord, it is almost here. And so we better get ready. So John, he looked like a prophet, and he lived like a prophet. He was out in the region beyond the Jordan, and so he wasn't speaking from the center of society, but he was, he was out on the margins, like prophets always were. And he ate locusts and wild honey, the food of the simple and the poor. And he lived, John lived as one who was utterly detached from the prominent and powerful. He, he didn't depend on them. He didn't need anything from them. And so he had the luxury of telling the truth whether anyone wanted to hear it or not. We have a similar cultural idea. You know, if someone has so much money that they can kind of say whatever they want, and you know the term, you know, we all know the expression for that, or maybe we don't. But, but it's like when you are so sort of, there's a freedom that comes either with great wealth, a detachment from sort of expectations and caring what other people think, or like John, from this place of great poverty. He depends on no one for anything, and so he can speak truth. And so John looked like a prophet, and he lived like a prophet, and he spoke like a prophet. He was this voice promised by Isaiah, a voice crying out in the wilderness. Peterson says, howling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, telling people that God was coming, and so it was time for them to get ready now. And that term, crying it out, crying out, the, 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 the Greek word for that is this, it evokes this like emotional yelling, this, this plaintive, just raising of your voice. When you read the early church fathers and early interpreters of scripture, it's always interesting for the details that they pick out and that they want to understand. And one of those, one of the church fathers says, well, why was John yelling? What's important about the fact that he was yelling in the wilderness? What does that tell us? And he said, well, there's, when, you, when someone yells when they're speaking, there's usually three reasons they do that. One, the person you're speaking to is far away. So you got to yell so they can hear you. The other is that they're hard of hearing. And so you have to yell, raise your voice so they can hear you. And he says, the third is that that person is angry. So you're sort of yelling back and forth with them. And, and, and this person said, well, that is a perfect description. Far away, hard of hearing, angry for the human race apart from God's grace. He says that's why John was yelling, because apart from grace, we are living in that state of being far away from God, willfully plugging our ears to God's word, and, and just being angry, angry at God, angry at the world, angry at each other. And so John is yelling because he's speaking into that kind of world. He needs to get the people's attention. So that's who John was, the embodiment of, of, of the law of the Old Testament, telling people to pay attention because God is coming, which leads us to the second thing we're going to look at. What was his message? 
that he was sharing so urgently and so loudly. You look at verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the trouble with this word repent is that in English, it's basically synonymous with feel really bad. I regret it. But that's just so weak when it comes to what John's message actually was. He, he was not going out in the wilderness and telling people to feel bad. No one would come out to hear that. At the core of his message, which also happens to be the core of Jesus' message, they, they, the words they use are exactly the same. It, it, it said it's time to turn your life around right now because, when it's, because God is coming back and when God does come back, you'd better be ready. Here's the illustration that I've found helpful. So it's a trope in teen movies. If you've watched any of them, you've seen this probably countless times. Uh, but you have the parents go out of town. So the parents go out of town, and then what's going to happen? The kids are going to throw a party. And actually, one of my cousins, or second cousins, once actually did this in real life. Um, and it did not turn out as well as the teen movies do. She just got in a lot of trouble. Um, but, you know, so the parents, the parents go out of town. The kids are going to throw a big party. or what? It usually starts as it's going to be a small party, and then lots of people find out. And then, whoa, whoa, all of a sudden, it's this huge raging party. What do we do? And, like, people are knocking over the, you know, Ming vase and, like, spilling on the carpet. And it's just this disaster. And then what happens is word comes, the phone call. Hey, we're coming home early. And then panic sets in, and you have to get everyone out the door and the cups and the trash and clean the carpet to make it look like nothing has taken place. And then usually it happens that, like, it all gets cleaned up just in the nick of the time the last person goes out the door or, you know, the last, like, beer bottle gets thrown in the recycling or something like that, and whew, they get away with it. And so John is, like, this voice saying, hey, everyone, Hey, this party that is going on, God is coming back. And so we have got to get ourselves cleaned up. We've got to get the house cleaned up. Because if we don't, we're going to be in huge trouble. And that rang true to the people in his society. That's why they were flocking to him in the wilderness. Because they knew things weren't right. And they wanted to get ready for God's return. And so they needed to come clean and they needed to get clean. Confess their sins and take a bath. Wash off the dirt and the grime of their old way of living. But the really subversive thing that John was doing with his baptism was this. Baptism is a, was a common Jewish practice. It was taken over by Christianity from Judaism. But, but the reason you got baptized um, in, in ancient Judaism was that you were, you were converting from being a, a Gentile, a non-Jew, to becoming a Jew. And so there, if you were converting to Judaism, there's three things you needed to do. You needed to change your way of living, so you had to start being Torah observant, you know, keeping kosher, all that kind of stuff. You also needed, if you were a male, to be circumcised. And then the third thing that you did was you would be baptized. You would take a bath as part of your ritual of initiation to becoming a Jewish convert. You were a Jew then. You belonged to the family of Abraham. And so what John is doing that's so subversive, he's calling everyone, even people who are already Jewish, to repentance, to undergo this, this conversion process. And his message came with this sharp warning about what would happen if you weren't ready when God came back, he says, you're going to be chopped down like a fruitless tree. You're going to be thrown into the fire like, like, like useless chaff or dead wood. And to us, you know, John, he sounds like a fundamentalist. But who are his harshest words for? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. The, the serious and sophisticated of the religious people of his day. John saves his harshest words for them, his harshest words, if we were to say, for the church people. 
because these were the two groups who, who were most resistant to his message of heart transformation. Both groups thought they could rely on outward appearances or, or religious pedigree for the security that they needed when God returned. And the Sadducees, they were the temple elites in Jerusalem. And they thought that as long as we keep the ceremonies and the sacrifices going, we're going to be fine. That's what matters most. But they didn't believe in anything that wasn't contained in the first five books of the Bible. And then there's the Pharisees who thought that well, what matters most is, is you live assiduously according to the 613 commandments found in the Mosaic Law. That's hard to do, but it's doable. We can do it. And when you do that, you show that, that this is what it means to live a righteous life and that you're a child of Abraham. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they're often presented in sermons as they represent sort of conservatives and liberals or something like that, and, and, and that's way too anachronistic to apply to them. Much more complex and interesting than that. But what we can say is they do represent two things that you find across the theological spectrum. And that's this, the, the, the temptation towards legalism on one hand or ritualism on the other. That what matters both is either the, the, the kind of rules you keep or, or the practices, the liturgy that you engage in. If you just keep doing that the right way, then you're going to be fine. And that's what matters instead of what John is focusing on here, this, this living, this active, humble walk with God. And so John's message is if that you want to be ready for God's kingdom, what matters most, it's not the rules you follow. It's not the rituals you keep. It's this repentance that encompasses your whole life. Shoot, it, it was Martin Luther who started his 95 theses by talking about repentance. That's what sparked the Reformation. His first theses was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. One of my favorite Twitter jokes I ever read was, we need more believers like Martin Luther who could only find 95 things wrong with their church. <laughs> so repentance, as Luther is using it, as John the Baptist is using it, as Jesus is going to use it, as Paul is going to use it, it means whole heart transformation and whole life commitment to God, turning the whole ship around, which starts with what the people did with John at the river. They confessed their sins. They took a bath as a sign that they wanted a fresh start. And so if we want to be ready for the kingdom, if we want to be ready for and belong to and live in the world as God intended it, it, it starts with confronting the brokenness that is within. We can't understand the sweetness of the gospel until we've heard the harshness of the law. We can't understand the magnitude of forgiveness until we've heard, grasped hold of condemnation. And that sounds harsh. You know, we're Western, enlightened, you know, liberal in the classical sense, 21st century, thoroughly modern people. We want God is love. God accepts us as we are. I'm okay. You're okay. This wrath stuff, that's, that's Old Testament or Puritan or, you know, belongs to centuries past. But one commentator I read, he put it so wonderfully. He said, God's wrath doesn't contradict God's love. It proves it. A love that pampers injustice is not lovable. I think an illustration of this is 12-step programs. There's a lot of law in there, right? Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. You want to hold up the mirror to your life that way? And, 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 and make a list of the people that you have wronged. And then, if it's possible and safe, do what you can to redress those wrongs. 
I mean, would you want to sit down and make a list of all the people that you had wronged in your life and then, and then try to make things right? But it's, it's this law that leads us to the gospel. And we, we need to hear that. The law says if you want to get right, first you've got to get real. And it's, 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 it's hard to get real, but it's necessary to get real to get right. And so John's message was a message that the church and the world needs to hear still, but the church especially needs to hear this. The world isn't right. We're not right. I'm not right. And I urgently need God to do something about it. The answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? I am, right? I am. But John doesn't leave us there. If we just left there, it'd be, oh, condemnation, all law, no gospel. That's not a great place to be, and that's not where we're going to get left. But John takes us as far as he and as far as the law can. Because if we want real transformation, what we need is the one far greater than John. The one whose sandals, John says, I'm not even fit to hold them. To get more, we need to get Jesus. Augustine said that the law was given that grace might be sought. But grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. If we were to apply that to our passage, we would say that John preached the law so that people might seek the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus preached the gospel so that people might find the true righteousness of the law that was preached by John. And this leads to our last section. What was it that John did? Baptize people and then baptize Jesus? I mean, that's the obvious answer. But before he did any of that, before he baptized Jesus, he did the most important thing of all. He, he pointed people to someone greater than himself. He pointed people to Jesus. He said, someone's coming after me, a stronger one, a mightier one, someone who I can't even compare myself to. Now, I'm giving you this water bath. He is going to give you a baptism, a bath in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And what exactly that means, that's, it's hard to understand. But it must mean this. It must mean that with Jesus' baptism, there's going to be the sending of God's Spirit upon those who are baptized in order to transform them and transform this world from the inside out. John saying, my, my, me, my baptism, we're the promise. Jesus and his baptism are the fulfillment. So Jesus comes out to John. He, he, this is the first we've seen or heard from him in 30 years. He comes out to John to be baptized. And John objects. He says, you're the one who should be baptizing me. Because if John's baptism is for people who are repenting of their sins and Jesus hasn't sinned, what is Jesus doing there? That's one of those perplexing theological questions that is really fun to wrestle with. What is Jesus doing there? It's a hard question, but it makes perfect sense when we understand, we think of Jesus' whole life. And so what's happening here at the beginning, it is perfectly fitting with especially what happens at the end. Right? Jesus, he ends his ministry on a cross between thieves. He begins his ministry in a river amongst sinners. And so Jesus is baptized in the Jordan for the same reason he dies on the cross, to take the place, to stand in the place of sinful humanity in order to bring us back to God. The gospel message is that God doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes to us first. And remember why John yelled? Because people were far away. People were deaf to God's word and people were angry. And so Jesus was baptized to draw near to us so that we could hear God's word through him and to make peace where there was animosity. 
And so it's as true at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as it will be at the end. And so Jesus sought baptism, not from a consciousness of sin, but out of a concern for sinners. And one commentator called this Jesus' first miracle, the miracle of humility. We'll see in the next chapter that Jesus is going to be driven out into the wilderness. He's going to be tempted by the evil one, and, and that temptation is always to exalt himself, to lift himself up. And here at the beginning of his ministry, we see Jesus humbling himself, humbling himself to the point of going beneath the waters of baptism. And in his baptism, Jesus isn't just identifying with us. He's revealing us to something about God and about himself. Right, we hear this voice from heaven. We see the Spirit descending upon the Son. And so right here at his baptism, we see God as, as a triune God, which is going to mirror what Jesus says at the end of his gospel, at the end of Matthew. He sends people out with a great commission. He says, go therefore baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name, the one name of the one God who we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So at this baptism, we see God as Holy Trinity. And in his baptism, we learn more about just who Jesus is. In the genealogy, it says, Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. But here, this voice from heaven is echoing the words of Psalm 2, which speak of the Messiah as this kingly figure who is God's beloved son. And there's echoes of Isaiah 42, where God says of his servant, the servant of the Lord, who is going to suffer for his people, it says, with him I am well pleased. And so already in this baptism, we see that Jesus is, is the king, Psalm 2 who will rule from the cross, Isaiah 42. And John, he preached a holy fire from God that would fall upon the earth. And Jesus embodied and preached peace because he was going to let that fire fall upon himself. So at his baptism, we see Jesus standing in solidarity with sinners. He reveals to us who God is and what kind of Messiah he will be. But, but more than that, the theological tradition says that through his baptism, Jesus sanctifies, he hallows, he makes holy the waters of our own baptisms. He makes our baptisms do for us what happened at his. And so it's, 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 it's wonderful, it's rich, it's beautiful, and it's simple too. So what happened at Jesus' baptisms? The heavens were opened, it says. In Mark, it says that the heavens were, tor were torn. It's the same word where we get schizophrenia, which is like two things being torn in two, that, 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 that the heavens were opened. A dove descended, and a supernatural voice of love spoke. And so when it comes to baptism, you know, we can't forget that, that John talks about it's not just about ritual acts. It's about heart and life transformation. It's not magic. It's a sacrament. It's even better than that. But our, our baptisms, the heavens are opened. We see the dividing wall between us and God torn. At our baptisms, the Holy Spirit descends on us like a, like a dove to bring peace so that we can live as peacemakers. And at our baptisms, the same voice that spoke of Jesus as his beloved child, with whom he is well pleased, speaks those words to us, that we have been adopted into God's family. We are his beloved sons and daughters, and that is the truest, the realest, the most important thing about us. To put it in the words of a slightly tweaked version of, of that beloved children's Bible song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for his baptism tells me so. Baptized ones to him belong. We are weak, but as John said, he is strong, the strongest one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Amen. Please pray with me.